Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. Today's show comes from a listener email. I love to get your questions and comments. If you have a question you think is going to be of broad interest, send it in. I'll answer it live on the air. Send your questions to victor at victorjm.com. That's victor at victorjm.com. Today's email comes from Adam in Riverside, California. He says, Victor, your podcasts are the best. I continue to be a proud, loyal listener. Thank you for continuing to deliver fresh and relevant content. Back in October, several of your podcasts foreshadowed concerning activity you noticed in the global credit markets and the banking system. With the recent bank failures, I can't help but wonder if they are somehow related to what you were noticing several months ago. Well, Adam, thank you for the kind words, and you are absolutely right. There is definitely some dots to be connected here. We saw examples in the fall of banks accessing credit facilities to enhance liquidity. We don't know exactly which banks they were that were accessing the foreign exchange window at the Swiss National Bank and the Federal Reserve, but we know about 17 banks were very active during the month of October. Then the shortage seemed to pass and the FX swap activity seemed to die down. But then in Q1, we saw more banks running into liquidity issues. The headlines in the last week have been about Silicon Valley Bank, but let's remember there is now many banks involved, and the reasons may be slightly different, but they're similar. The latest is First Republic. The Fed was really the architect of these bank failures. They didn't model the impact of the rise in interest rates on the balance sheets of these member institutions. One thing you might have noticed is that when interest rates fell in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, the interest rates that banks offered depositors also fell in tandem. When the federal funds rate hit zero, so too did the rate of interest that banks offered to depositors. But as interest rates increased, banks kept their rate of interest offered on deposit accounts at near zero. A quick survey, even this week, of major banks shows that banks are offering still very near zero. At Bank of America, the interest rate offered to depositors in a savings account ranges between 1 one-hundredth of 1% and 4 one-hundredths of 1% to their very best clients. Now, to be perfectly blunt, that is so near zero, they should just call it zero. If you want higher yield, you can purchase a certificate of deposit, but here too, the interest rate is three one-hundredths of one percent. At least that's what's on their website. So investors in search of yield are incented to look elsewhere. The incentive exists to withdraw funds and to buy something with higher yield. What is higher yield? Well, short-term T-bills do. So the conditions have been created for high cash balance clients to withdraw their funds in search of yield. Another trend that we noticed last year was the significant reduction in foreign investment in U.S. Treasuries. Now, this has been a trend for several years. China has stopped buying Treasuries. Saudi Arabia has significantly declined their purchases of U.S. Treasuries. It's really only Japan that is still a major buyer of U.S. Treasuries. I was concerned that the declining foreign appetite for U.S. Treasuries would ultimately result in weakening the U.S. dollar's reserve currency status. In particular, the Treasury Department would face higher borrowing costs, and if the demand for U.S. dollar paper dries up, the cost of servicing the ballooning U.S. debt would eventually lead to a debt trap and eventually a major default by the U.S. government. Quietly behind the scenes, the Federal Reserve created the conditions that encouraged U.S. domestic banks to become major holders of U.S. treasuries. And as we've seen, bank balance sheets have taken on more and more of this paper. 
It's not just Silicon Valley Bank, although they were one of the ones with the highest exposure to U.S. Treasuries and government-backed mortgage securities at 93% of their total equity. But there's others. There's Signature Bank and First Republic, lots of other banks. The bloodbath in the bond market has not shielded anyone from paper losses. Sure, you'll be made whole if you hold to maturity, but if you just bought 30-year paper at 2.5% and inflation's running at 10%, you've got 7.5% negative yield in real terms. Layer on top of that a sharp rise in short-term rates, and now that 30-year paper becomes highly illiquid or it becomes a bloodbath for those who sell. All of this is old news. That's all from last fall. The link between these two is starting to become clear. But it took one more thing to pop the balloon. In this case, it took a run on the bank. But when a pin pops a balloon, it's often the pin that gets the blame. It's actually not the pin's fault. See, when Bank of America has the arrogance to offer three one-hundredths of one percent as their best offer, they're basically screaming at their depositors to withdraw their funds. But it's not just Bank of America. Some banks, like Truist, which is a new bank resulting from the merger of BB&T and SunTrust, is now the sixth largest bank in the country. They're offering 4.23% on certificates of deposit over $100,000 for a nine-month term. It's a little bit more respectable. But as soon as a customer is making a decision to move funds out of their account into something else, the customer will generally evaluate the best place to put it. If they can get higher yield in short-term treasuries, those funds have a higher chance of leaving the bank, and that's exactly what we're seeing. The balloon had a major leak long before the pin showed up. First Republic Bank is a great example. The problems at First Republic Bank predate Silicon Valley Bank. We were all shocked by the speed with which Signature Bank failed and the speed with which Silicon Valley Bank failed. But remember 2008. It took three days for Bear Stearns to go from a solid institution to a troubled but viable institution, and then finally, by day three, an unviable institution. Three days, that's it. It took Silicon Valley Bank two days. Not that different, really. When there's a liquidity crisis at a bank, it's almost always a crisis of collateral. Either the collateral is not available to be pledged, or it's not considered to be of sufficient quality to borrow against. It's almost always one of those two things. And we are seeing a crisis of collateral. Unless you arbitrarily value U.S. Treasuries at face value, for the purpose of collateral, which is what the Federal Reserve did last Sunday, the value of the collateral is somewhere between unknown and suffering a substantial haircut, but you don't really know how to value that collateral. And as interest rates have gone up, you're going to see more and more collateral destruction, which translates into ultimately liquidity problems. That's the root cause, and unfortunately, it's the pin that will often get the blame. That collateral destruction is not only happening in the banking system, it's carrying over into real estate as well. That means borrowers will face similar liquidity problems as the banks. They will need to find additional equity, additional cash, to provide covering equity. As interest rates rise, the amount of covering equity required goes up in every asset class that's sensitive to interest rates. And if real estate defaults start to rise, these defaults will have the same effect on lenders as mass withdrawals. And so far, we've only seen issues on the deposit side of the house. We've not even begun to see distress in the loan portfolios. I want to thank you, Adam, for your very astute email. And for the listeners at home, have an awesome rest of your day. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.